Acts 10, please. Verse 1. The title of the message this morning is Two Visions and a New People. Two Visions and a New People. And we've come to a very historic moment in the history of redemption. In the book of Acts, this is a key point where the focus now is going to go to the Gentiles. If you remember Jesus in Acts 1.8, he gave us a, a sort of a roadmap to the book of Acts. He said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we've been studying about Jerusalem. Have they been witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria? And now we're about to hit to the ends of the earth. And really the rest of the book of Acts will be chronicling the gospel, basically going to the Gentiles, us, everybody other than the Jews, who were the people of God exclusively up until this point. So this is a key day. As a matter of fact, this narrative about the gospel going to the Gentiles, particularly how Cornelius receives the gospel, how Peter preaches to Cornelius, and then how Peter defends the fact that he went to a forbidden Gentile and went into his house, will take up the next three weeks of our sermon series. I'm going to begin with verses 1 to 23a in chapter 10, and then I'll continue this particular narrative in verses 23b to 48, and then Bentley in two weeks will take up Peter's defense to the rest of the Jewish believers on why he went to preach the gospel to a Gentile who were unclean, unholy, and all the bad things that you didn't want to be around. So, three weeks, key time. But we're going to start this morning with the initial visions. Two visions and a new people. So let's read together. If you do not have a Bible, I urge you to get one on that table back there. It's, your, it's yours, it's a gift to you if you don't own one. But boy, if you have one, open it to Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Here we go. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he, Cornelius, called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So there's the first vision. Here's the second vision. The next day, verse 9, as they, Cornelius' men, were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, it's about noon, to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, lunch, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, 
being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 14, but Peter said, By no means, Lord. Third time Peter's told the Lord, No. Love Peter. I am Peter. (laughs) By no means, Lord. Those two don't go together. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time with a cataclysmic change in the makeup of the people of God and the church. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. God really wanted to make a point here to Peter. (laughs) And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, the two visions are going to collide right now. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius at that moment, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out. So Peter's on the roof. These guys are calling out. He may have heard them. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, gave him kind of an elbow in the side, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise. And go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason you are coming for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. Verse 23a, so he, Peter, invited them, Cornelius' friends, in to be his guests. Lord, open our eyes to what you want to say to us this morning. May this word come alive, and may you build your church and make your disciples. Fill us with faith to proclaim Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now imagine, Imagine receiving a non-drug-induced, I have to say that here, a non-drug-induced vision from God, where the heavens were opened up in trance-like wonder, complete with the audible voice of God. And imagine this happening not once, not twice, but three times. What would be so important that God would arrest Peter's attention in such a way? What was God wanting to communicate to Peter. And what does he want to communicate to us this morning? Well, as I've mentioned, what God wanted to communicate to Peter is that the makeup of the people of God is about to change radically. What he's trying to tell Peter is the Gentiles, whom you would see as common, not holy, not set apart, unclean, not righteous at all, I am going to include them into my people. So pay attention. This is huge. As I said, we're going to be talking about this from today's message, chapter 10, verse 1, all the way through chapter 11, verse 18. Three messages are going to be dealing with this issue. God used two visions to convert two men in order to form one people. 
Hence the title, Two Visions and a New People. Got that? He used two visions to convert two men to form one new people. Hey, I thought Peter was already converted. Yes, he was. I'll explain that use of conversion in parentheses in a moment. All right, Al, so that's why we're studying this. That's the main point here. But what's the point for us? All right, here's the point for us. God is going to include a certain type of person, a people group, that for the Jewish believer could never be included, was unclean, was common, was not holy. And God had to overcome in Peter certain prejudices, certain uh, traditions, certain ways of looking at this people. He had to overcome that in Peter so that he could then send Peter to preach Jesus that these people might be included in God's holy people. Well, how does that relate to me today, Al? Well, could it be that the Lord using this story, this narrative, might be speaking to you and to me. That perhaps there might be some people that we either sinfully are prejudiced against, we think we're better than they are, we don't like them, or what's probably more the case for most of us living in Miami, South Florida, we're just a little uncomfortable with them. They're different than we are. Here in Miami, they may speak a different language. We don't understand what they're saying. Their culture is different. Their food is different. They look differently. It's not necessarily a sinful thing. It's just, I just don't feel comfortable with them. Uh, Many of you probably know that on Thursdays, we get together and have a leadership team meeting. And this last Thursday was no different. So we got together as a leadership team. And toward the afternoon time, after we had had a meeting and, and done some planning, praying, and and all that stuff, you know, Bentley gets a phone call, and uh, Bentley Crawford, our administrator, gets a phone call from his young wife, Sarah Love, and saying their little baby girl, Annie, is sick, pretty sick. And so she was able to take Annie to the doctor, and the doctor prescribed a certain medication, and they were anxious to get that medication. You know, this flu's been going around, it's pretty serious, so they wanted to get right on it, and so I said, great, you know, it's about three o'clock in the afternoon, and, and, and so I said, well, Bentley, Uh, where are you getting it? He says, well, it's a Walgreens, but they don't have it in any Walgreens up here. I've got to go into the city, into Miami to get it. And I said, well, well, where is it? He says, oh, it's in a place, it's right in a place called Alapata. I said, hey, Bentley, why don't I go with you? Now, if you're not from Miami, Alapata, that's where my grandparents came and lived when they came from Cuba back in the 60s. The address of this Walgreens was Northwest 20th Street and 17th Avenue. So I went with Bentley, we had a great time, drove down there, um, you know, pulled into the Walgreens there. I said, Bentley, you go in and get it. So, you know, he goes in and uh, he comes out and he sits down and he goes, wow, that was really unique. He says, everybody was looking at me. <laughs> now, now, let me just say something about Bentley and Sarah Love. Actually, Bentley and Sarah Love are the positive example of what this text is teaching us here here's two here's a couple a young couple blonde hair blue-eyed tall fair-skinned from mississippi and god has so worked in their lives that he can send them wherever he wants to preach jesus to people that are very different from them as you may or may not know they were missionaries in italy for two years and then god sent them here that he might preach Jesus to us. 
But when Bentley got in the car, we were talking about this all the way back. I said, so how did it feel, buddy? <laughs> he said, well, you know, it was interesting. I said, yeah, I kind of felt like you were going to a pharmacy in Central America, right? He said, yep. I mean, everybody was different. They were all looking at this tall, you know, blue-eyed, fair-skinned guy who speaks English, not Spanish, and everybody else was speaking Spanish. And he said, you know, I- I'm fine with it. He says, but I'll-, I'll grant you, it's a little uncomfortable. Everybody's looking at you. What are you doing here? <laughs> and I was laughing. We were laughing. We were actually talking about there's certain parts of Miami that I would feel that way. Now, where we were, I didn't. I was fine. I could understand what people are saying. I've been to many of these countries. So, so the issue for Bentley wasn't, it was just one of, this isn't what I'm used to, and I look very differently from all these people. I, I think what the Lord wants to share with us today is he wants to overcome whatever little hindrance might be in us from him being able to send us to preach Jesus to people that that might be the last people we would choose to preach Jesus to. Now, in a moment, I'm going to explain this to you. But the difference between a blue-eyed, fair-skinned, tall, skinny guy from Mississippi and a a short, brown-skinned, dark-eyed person from Central America at at that pharmacy speaking Spanish. The difference between them is nothing compared to the difference between Peter, a Jewish believer, and a Roman centurion Cornelius. That difference was cataclysmic. They weren't even allowed to talk to each other. So, from the greater to the lesser, if he can do that and overcome that, so that Peter might go and preach Jesus, what, does he want to do that in us? Because friends, we who live in South Florida, that's what I love about South Florida. We are going to be in environments where we're not comfortable, where it's way different from us. Listen, I'll send you right now to 60th Street, Northwest 60th Street, and North Miami Avenue, and I've just sent you to Little Haiti. You would think you were in Haiti. And if I sent you to Sweetwater right now, you'd be in Little Managua, Little Nicaragua. And if you went over to the beach in certain areas, you'd think you were in Israel. And if you were in Hialeah, you know where you're at, right? Cuba. And, and if you go to Miramar, in East Miramar, you would think you're in the West Indies. You would think you're in Jamaica or St. Vincent or Barbados. This city is unique. It, it truly is a unique city. I mean, just, just think for a moment about our new members. We had four family units join the church last week. An African-American couple, he's from Washington, D.C., she's from North Carolina, a Filipino nurse, a young woman that just graduated from Wheaton who was born to Nicaraguan parents in Mexico City and grew up in Hialeah, and the daughter of Cuban exiles who's grown up pretty much all her adult life in Miami Lakes. I mean, that's four. How much more different can you get? And yet, God brought them together. Forming his new people. And it started here. It started here. What's the main point? Here's the main point. God, the Holy Spirit, directs the mission of the church to the Gentiles. God, the Holy Spirit, directs the mission of the church to the Gentiles. And he did it to someone who was very, very reticent to go to a Gentile. If he did it then, then God, the Holy Spirit, directs our mission here today in this beautiful city, in this diverse city. This is one of the few cities that you could go do missions and never leave the city. I mean, for reals, do missions. 
Like live there and just think you were in that country. This is a historic moment in the life of the church. God reveals his people, a new people, no longer divided by Jew and Gentile, by clean and unclean, by holy and profane, but a people united in Christ. One new man, one new people, who together are made clean in Jesus. That must be our vision. God has united us to proclaim Jesus to all nations. So the history of redemption hits a milestone. And God includes the Gentiles in these next three weeks as his people in Jesus. And he makes this revelation through two visions. Not two, but two. Two visions. Get that straight. Two visions. So let's take a look at the two visions. Vision number one. God's vision for Cornelius. Look at verse one. God's vision for Cornelius. So Cornelius is a a Roman commander, a centurion. That means he commands a hundred men. And he is stationed in a place called Caesarea, a coastal town in northern Israel. So if you could put the map up, and I think I crossed these guys up and where I put the map. Yeah, there we go. All right, there's the famous map that no one can read. So Caesarea is at the very top of the map on the coast. It's the uppermost uh, diamond you see there, star. That's Caesarea. This is where Cornelius commanded a a battalion or a group of 100 men. Joppa is about 35 miles south where the two red lines intersect on the coast. That's Joppa. So Peter is in Joppa waiting for lunch. Cornelius the day before is in Caesarea praying at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We know from verse uh, 2a that he's a devout man. Cornelius is a man who feared God along with his household. What does this mean? It meant that he probably worshipped with Jews and accepted their monotheism, which for a Roman was a big deal. They were pantheists. There were all kinds of gods. Caesar was a god. Many, many gods. Looks like this guy probably accepted the monotheism of Judaism, even the ethical standards of Judaism, may even have attended synagogue services with the Jews. However, he was not a convert. He was not circumcised. He could not go into the temple. As a man who feared God, he probably prayed when the Jews prayed. So one of the hours of prayer was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's the ninth hour in verse 2b. And as he's praying in verse 3, an angel suddenly walks in. Now, he's in a vision. Did he physically walk in? I don't know, but let me tell you, it was real enough that it freaked Cornelius out. Now, this is a commander of a hundred This is a strong man. This is a man that would not have flinched in combat, would not have flinched in battle, probably saw men die right next to him, probably was wounded in combat. This was a tough hombre. And when he sees that angel, what does it say there in verse 4a? Let me read it to you. And he stared at him in terror. He was terrorized. He knew something was happening that was unique. And the angel gives him some good news. 4B. He asked the angel, what is it, Lord? And he, the angel, says to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. What in the world does that mean? Here's what I think it means. God is sovereign in salvation. So you have a pagan Roman centurion who has been influenced by Judaism 
And he is giving alms, generous to the poor. He is praying when the Jews pray, but he's not circumcised. He does not have the sign of the covenant on him. He's not a convert. But what this tells me is that God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. And he obviously had mercy on Cornelius. Because God would have never accepted Cornelius based on his prayers or based on his giving money to the poor. He simply he simply accepted Cornelius because he had mercy on Cornelius. Because he had a plan for Cornelius. And in verse 5, the angel gives Cornelius the plan, the first part of the plan. Look at it, verse 5. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So he gives him very specific instructions to get one man and to have that one man brought back to him, and this is where the one man lives, in Joppa. So if you put the map back up there, so he's going to send a group of three guys, and they're going to walk about the 35 miles from Caesarea at the north down to Joppa, where the two red lines intersect. It's a long walk. It's not like walking down one of our streets. Probably about a 21-hour walk for a Roman soldier is what the uh, authorities say. And Cornelius being a good soldier, verse 7, he's trained to obey He gives orders and he expects people to obey. He's obviously fearing God, so he's going to obey this holy angel. He calls two of his servants, in verse 7, and a devout soldier. And in verse 8, he relates to them everything that the angel had spoken to him, and he sends them off. Go. Go right now. Now, I love what Eckhart Schnabel says about Cornelius, this next quote. He says this, Cornelius is not justified by his prayers and charity, just as the Jew is not justified before God by his law keeping. Catch this next part. But God brings Cornelius now to Jesus through Peter's preaching. So God had to give Cornelius this vision, vision number one, so that Cornelius would send the requisite personnel to get Peter, and he's about to give Peter vision number two, so that Peter could preach Jesus to Cornelius, and God could form one new people. One new people. One new people. A people that are so different, more different than Bentley would be than those Central Americans in that pharmacy in Alapata. A people that would be separate from one another. He's going to make one new holy people. Friends, here's the application. We never know. We never know whom God will bring to Jesus through our preaching. Are we willing to go? You know what we can know from this text? That oftentimes it will be that very person that we may have thought is the last person I want to preach to. It's the last person God will save. Not him, not her. But you know what's fascinating? It's interesting that God didn't use the angel to preach the gospel to Cornelius. I've asked myself that, Lord, you had a captive audience. Dude is terrorized. You got him. All the angel had to do was talk about Jesus. Isn't it interesting? He didn't. Because God chooses to use you and me to preach Jesus, not angels. Why, I don't know. But I give him glory because the plan is perfect and right. Are you willing? 
God is working. He's calling. He's having mercy on whom he will have mercy right here in South Florida. And it is our adventure to be a part of that as we are obedient to God's will. Here's the question. Here's the question for you, friends. To whom might God be calling you to preach Jesus? Whom is God bringing to Jesus through our preaching? Is he bringing anyone to Jesus through our preaching? Oh, that's my prayer, church. And I start with myself. Use me. Unstop my ears. God wants to use us. Are we willing to come? Are we willing to go? As Bentley and Sarah Love are willing to come here to Miami, willing to go to Italy because of their love for the Lord. Friends, God, the Holy Spirit, directs the mission of the church to the Gentiles. God is sovereign in these matters, and God is working, and God is the one who's initiating, and we see that in verse 9. Look at verse 9. The next day, as they, the two servants and the devout soldier, were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, that's noon, to pray. So it's the next day. These guys have been walking for 21 hours. They're pulling into Joppa. They're tired. They're not resting. They're not going to the hotel. They're not trying to find the hot tub. They're not looking for the pool. They're not looking for the bar. They're looking for the house. That's what they're doing. They're on mission with the gospel, though they don't even know it. They're not even believers yet. They will be. We're going to preach that next week. But they're obeying. You've got these two visions about to collide together to form this one new people. And friends, Peter will need a vision because according to his tradition, he could not and would not ever agree to even talk with these men, let alone accompany them back to Caesarea to enter the home of a Gentile. Point two, God's vision for Peter. God has been working in Cornelius' heart, preparing him for conversion through that first vision, and now God will be working in Peter's heart, preparing his heart to preach Jesus to this pagan Gentile Roman soldier in his home. For Peter to be willing to do this, oh friends, he would have to undergo a conversion of sorts. We cannot understate the level of animosity, anger, hatred even, that the Jew had for the Gentile. Look at this quote by John Stott. The tragedy was that Israel had twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism. They became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised Gentiles as dogs, and developed traditions which kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile, even a God-fearer, or invite such into his home. This chapter is as much about Peter's conversion as it is about Cornelius' conversion. So God addresses Peter by giving him a vision at noon while Peter is upstairs on the, as we would say in Cuba, La Placa. And you see them in Hialeah. What's a a, a Placa? It's just a slab of concrete that you see in the Caribbean and in places like Israel where, where they're by the coast. It's just a slab of concrete, second or third floor. Usually it's open to the sea. He's looking, if any of you have ever been to Cuba, Matanzas, looking over Matanzas Bay. The breeze is flowing. It's probably hot. It's noon. He's hungry. He wants to get some food. He goes up there, and, and, and then they start cooking the food downstairs. Blanquita starts cooking the food, and the smell of that wonderful food is wafting up into his nose. And he's a good Jew, so he's praying. It's noon. And isn't it interesting that God uses a vision about food to speak to Peter when he's hungry at noon, and they're cooking food downstairs? 
while at the same time, these guys have been walking 21 hours to, to say, hey, is Peter here? Talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation. When you go preach the gospel, you're not trying to make it happen. God's already working things. Will you do your role? Hey, is Peter here? That's it. Walk 21 hours. Don't stop for a beer, but go right to Peter's house. Say, is Peter here? Can you do that? Now, why food? Look at verse 13, 12 and 13. So he goes into a trance, verse 11, sorry, and he sees the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. Now, probably it got let down like, so like Peter could like, he could kind of peek into it. So here comes this sheet. I wonder what's in there. Hope it doesn't hit me. Boom. Ooh. And he sees reptiles and insects and all kinds of animals. Some of them clean, a lot of them unclean. He's going, ooh. But he's hungry. You know, so he's like, you know, a little roasted cockroach. I don't know, maybe, you know, it's like I'm hungry right now. Verse 12, in it all, were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And so Peter, at that moment, at that moment in the vision, he has this trance. He's about to hear something that is going to blow his mind. This is not what he expected to hear. Have you ever heard stuff from God or read stuff that you just weren't expecting to hear? Boy, Peter hears it here. Verse 13, and there came a voice from heaven, and this is most likely the Lord Jesus, the exalted Lord Jesus. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And I love Peter here, verse 14. By no means, Lord, (laughs) for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So let's press the pause button because we need to understand as Gentiles, as non-Jews, what in the world's going on here. Let me explain to you the dietary laws of a good Jew. Those dietary laws were all about God's holiness and Israel's election. So you see how Peter says, I've never eaten anything in verse 14 that is common or unclean? Those are two different categories. Two different categories. Common would be something that's not holy, but don't think about it as um, a righteousness in their actions. No, no, no. Think of holy as separate unto God. Let me explain here. We are a holy people. Have you ever heard that? The Greek word for that in the New Testament is hagias. Not hagendas, but hagias. So hagias is the, is the term for us as Christians. We're holy. Does that mean we're righteous and do everything right all the time? No way. No way. But it means our status. We are part of God's people, holy, separated unto God. So see, for the Jew, his dietary laws were simply to live out the fact that they have been elected as God's holy people. They don't always act holy. In fact, you see in the Old Testament, a lot of times they act decidedly unholy, worse than the pagans that live around them. But they are holy in the sense that God has chosen them as his people. So therefore, if you're chosen as God's people, you have to have your diet restricted to show that you're chosen. To to symbolize who you are, even though you don't act like it sometimes. You got that? Okay, now remember, is the Roman centurion holy? Forget about their behavior. 
Forget about how righteous that Roman centurion or Peter might be. But is he by definition holy? No, he's common. He's profane. Not because he's done anything wrong, but because he was born a Gentile. He's not holy. He's not one of the chosen ones. It's important for you to see that. Now, second category is more of a moral purity. So when he says unclean there, that is speaking more about what I do, my behavior. Sometimes the pagans behaved better than the Jews, if you read in the Old Testament. Some of the horrible things that Israel did. So those are those two categories that Peter is saying. I'm never going to eat anything common that's not holy, and I'm not going to eat anything unclean. And there were certain animals that were seen as common and unclean. The issue then between holy and common, between clean and unclean, is this. Who are the people of God? You've got to see that here, or else you'll miss the interpretation of this. Who are the people of God? Who is holy? Not morally, but positionally. Elected. People of God. So Peter is saying, no, I'm not going to eat what is unholy, what is common, what's not separated to God, nor what is unclean. And that's why in verse 13, when he hears Jesus... If you're in in my Bible, it's red letter. I think it is the voice of the exalted Lord. Jesus say, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And then Peter says the logical thing for a Jew. Oh, the Lord must be testing me just because I'm hungry right now. You think I'm going to eat a cockroach? No, I am pure. I am holy. Plus, it's gross. And I I am clean, so I'm not going to eat that. I'm going to pass the test. Oh, no, Lord, I'm really hungry. I could eat all of them, but I'm not going to because I'm holy. And then the voice says in verse 15, and the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, morally, wiped our sins away, do not call common. Got that? Jesus takes our sins away, cleanses us, and then makes us holy. We become the people of God. Doesn't mean we always do the right thing, but positionally, we are now holy. We're no longer common. We're a holy people, a royal uh, priesthood, a called out people. So what Jesus is saying to him in this vision is, you're hungry, you don't want to eat all that stuff, but if I clean it and I make it holy, don't you say it's unclean and common? Of course. And uh, by the way, Verse uh, 16, this happened three times and the thing was taken away at once. So, you know, it's like watching this movie with the loop. Well, what? Well, he and Peter, there all three times. No, well, Lord, he said the same. So it's just repeated three times. 17, you can understand this. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, yeah, that's a nice way of saying, uh, what? What are you saying? What's going on here? As to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, right at that moment, they call out, hey, is Peter there? And then verse uh, 18, 19. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, I love this. Do you see the Trinity here? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now the Spirit says to Peter, Jesus had spoken to Peter. Now the Spirit is talking here. The Trinity, the Godhead is involved in this cataclysmic, historic event of the Gentiles being added to the church. Overcoming the prejudices and the traditions that Peter held that he didn't quite understand. Who were the people of God? Who was excluded And the Spirit says to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down. Look at verse 20. 
rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Look at the parallel between verse 20 and verse 13. Jesus says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And then the Spirit says to Peter in verse 20, rise and go down. Do you see the parallel? I make them clean. I make them common. Eat it. Rise. Go with them. I make them clean. I'm going to cleanse them through the preaching of Jesus. I'm going to make them now holy and call them as my people. That's what Peter was going. I think I get it, but I'm hungry. It's noon. Come on. You know, I'm like, what's going on? It's exciting is what's going on. It's the vision that births this is what's going on. Pay attention to what's going on. This is important. God's sovereign. He's sovereign in election. He's sovereign in building his church. So what does Peter do? Look at verse 21. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation and was directed by a holy angel to send to, for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So it's starting to click now for Peter. And what does he do in verse 23? What he should have done as a good Jew is told them to leave, please. What he does is he invites them in as his guests. And what God wants to ask you is, are there people that you aren't willing to invite in as your guests? You consider them unclean, uncouth, dismissive. Not them, Lord. And the Lord is saying, I'm going to overcome that prejudice in you. Overcome that uncomfortability in you because of the gospel. Because they're my people. Don't you call common what I call holy. I don't care what they look like on the outside. I don't care what they've done. If I clean them and I make them holy and they become my people, they're your people. Because I cleansed you and I made you holy. Peter invites them in. Friends, are you willing and ready to go and preach Jesus to those whom God is bringing to Jesus? Because point three... This is God's vision for a new people. God's vision for a new people. He brings the two visions together. Cornelius' vision, Peter's vision. There's this new people, Jew and Gentile, brought together. The narrative ends. Peter invites them in. And the question God has for us is, whom is God calling you to invite in as your guest? Oh, friends, here's my appeal. Here's my appeal to you this morning. I believe it's the Lord's appeal to you this morning by the Spirit. The original author and audience, first century Christians, Luke writing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they, they wrote this. The meaning of this text is to clearly preach to all the world that the Gentiles have now been included as the new people of God, grafted in, is how Romans 10 would say it, with Israel. And it's a huge moment in the history of, of redemption. And it's a major theme in the book of Acts, as I mentioned earlier. And as I think you would agree with me, every text has one meaning, but it can have various uh, sort of a bandwidth of applications. And as I read this text and how God overcame Peter's views on clean versus unclean, on holy versus common, 
his views on who the people of God really are. I wonder, does God want to change our views a little bit? Adjust how we would judge people? Would God want to identify some unhelpful, even unbiblical views on clean versus unclean, on holy versus common, on who God's people are? Perhaps some uncomfortabilities against certain people, cultures, races, uh, views that God wants to overcome in order to prepare us to go and preach Jesus to those who would be for us perhaps unclean, unholy, as a Gentile would have been for Peter. Who would you view as unclean, less than you, an undesirable person or group of people? May the Lord speak to you what he spoke to Peter. What God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. Whom God has called to be his holy people, don't you call them common? Perhaps it's someone within our church that others in our church wouldn't associate as closely with because of ethnic, racial, political, or class differences. Perhaps it's those outside the church who you would feel more uncomfortable around, someone maybe that you would deem as less likely to believe in the gospel. I'll never forget the testimony of the Morla clan. And when, when, when when they were telling me the last person they thought that God would save would be big Richard Morla one of the reasons why he heads up our security team. (laughs) Because we like it that he looks like he'd be the last person that would even be saved. (laughs) And Richard would tell you, he's the last one. Thank God that God saves those that we consider the last one, the least likely, the least deserving. Who are we? Who are we to call unclean what God calls clean? To call common what God calls holy? Friends, what I'm talking about here is favoritism, cultural or socioeconomic elitism, and yes, even racism. They're all fueled by pride, by arrogance. They are not expressions of love toward our fellow man, and thus they violate the great commandment that states we're to love God with all of our hearts, souls, and minds, and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Listen, this does not please God. And God wants to change us this morning, to convert us, like he changed and converted Peter in such a way that we see people as God sees them, not as our traditions have taught us to see them. We must see others in light of Christ and his work to make of us all one new people, holy people, no longer common, but God's people. Yeah, we still do things wrong and we still need to change. Our purity still needs to increase, but we're holy. We are the holy people of God. Jew, Greek, Cuban, American, black, white, Haitian, Dominican, Jamaican, rich, poor, Republican, Democrat, Filipino, Argentino, did you like that one? Nicaraguan, Salvadorian, Colombian, Venezuelan, Chilean, Bayesian, Vincentian, Peruvian, Ecuadorian, Italian, Puerto Rican, and Brazilian. That's just those that are in our church. As I said, I was freshly reminded of this when I looked at our new members class. We just received, wow, what diversity. 
What unites us, friends, is not our race, nor our language, nor our cultural background, nor the foods that we like, nor our politics, nor even the football teams that we root for. But what unites us, what unites us is our new life in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, a new life we live together in community as God's new people, his covenant people. That's our new identity. Without losing the distinctives of the others, I love the distinctives of the others. But that's not primary anymore. And maybe God wants to remind us of this truth and for some to convert. So we're willing to invite in as guests those whom our traditions may have forbidden for us to invite in. For now we have a far greater tradition, friends, and that is God's kingdom, God's people, his saints, his holy ones. We've been adopted through Jesus Christ as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have one Father, one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism, one hope, one eternal destiny. We're called the church. And we are to worship Jesus and image Jesus and proclaim Jesus together. So like Peter, let us hear the Lord's command to invite them in as our guests because he sent them to us and he sends us out to preach the gospel to them. This, I believe, is the application for this morning. And to that end, I want to pray. And during my prayer, I ask the worship team to come up. We're going to conclude with the song. But let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, I pray that you would get our attention this morning. I'm aware that there are those in here whose attentions aren't being gotten by you. And I pray you would put your finger on their heart and their mind and that you would arrest them, Lord God, and that you would gain their attention far greater than I can through my words. Lord, I have a zeal for your church. I have a zeal that every member would be leaning forward, their hearts would be captured by your spirit, and that your church would be built. But, oh, Father, I have no power to do it. And so I confess to you, Lord, I zealously pray, knock a few upside the head right now, starting with me. Oh God, may we be a zealous people for your glory and be done with the foolishness of the world. Be done with our own selves. Be done with the proud, arrogant self. Our judgments. Oh God. Jesus, we're your people. We're your holy people. At times we don't act like it. But positionally, we are called, set apart. Help us now to be who we are. Lord, I pray that we would sing and speak and live for the name that is above all names, all cultures, all languages, all people. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. Let us stand and sing, name above all names.